If you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to 1 Corinthians? If you don't know where that is, I've got mine open to 1 Corinthians. Most of the way into the Bible. Uh, it comes after the book of Romans in the New Testament, and wouldn't you know it, before 2 Corinthians, okay? 1 Corinthians. As you turn there, let me uh, divert you to Acts 18 and just tell you a little bit. We find out about Corinth and how the church in Corinth came to be by reading Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, and he began to speak in the synagogue there every week, trying to persuade the Jews, who, the Jewish folks who lived in Corinth, that Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, that, that in their Hebrew Scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament, there was one who was coming that the, those Scriptures were pointing to who was Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled all of that, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that, the Christ, the Anointed One. He was trying to persuade them of that fact. But we're told in Acts chapter 18 that they opposed and reviled him. Translation, didn't go so great for Paul in Corinth. So he turned from preaching to the Jewish people in Corinth and turned to the Gentile people and started preaching to them. Now that's everybody in Corinth who wasn't Jewish. And he started preaching to them. Things weren't going great for Paul, but he persevered. And the reason that he did was because Jesus came to him in a vision and said this. We see it in Acts 18 verse 9. Do not be afraid, Jesus said to Paul. As he's striving, as he's proclaiming the gospel in, in uh, Corinth, and it doesn't seem like anything is happening, do not be afraid, Jesus said, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Which when Paul's hearing this vision, he's probably pumped because Paul was often injured. Paul was often harmed by people, like people stoned him, they dragged him out of the city, they did all sorts of stuff to him, and so he's probably pretty pumped when Jesus is like, no one's going to harm you here. He's like, yes! But he's even more excited about what Jesus says next. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, there weren't people coming to faith at that point, really, but Jesus was saying, persevere, Paul. I'm going to keep you safe, and I'm going to keep you safe because as you proclaim, I have people in this city who are going to come to saving faith. Well, that happened. People started coming to faith, and he stayed, we're told, a year and a half preaching the word and planting the church in Corinth. Now, we're going to spend um, the next number of months in this letter, 1 Corinthians, we're going to spend months there. So if, you're, if you come to Central over the next number of weeks, well into January of 2019, you can just open your Bible to 1 Corinthians. That's where we'll be. We'll take a little breather around Christmas. But other than that, we will be in 1 Corinthians. So let's learn a little bit about this ancient city, this city called Corinth. In the first century um, is where we're kind of looking at its context. It was located on the coast. And it was a high-traffic port city connecting people from many cultures, much like Vancouver, really. A high-traffic port city, kind of a crossroads for shipping. And so a lot of people from all kinds of places stopped in Corinth. It's been said of Corinth that it was an explorational and aspirational city. I like that. That's, that's helpful in understanding what Corinth was like. As an explorational city, uh, many cultures and religious beliefs mingled in Corinth, full of religious diversity this city was. The average citizen of Corinth would feel like any number of potential options existed so they could find whichever religion or belief system suited them best. Sound familiar? As an aspirational city, 
Its citizens were looking to advance up the ladder of affluence, and they did this through unyielding self-promotion and Instagramming. Uh, and so, sound familiar? So there's this explorational, oh, there's, there's just such religi religious diversity. It's like a, a smorgasbord of options here when it comes to religion. And there's such pursuit of personal uh, affluence and wealth accruing in this city that everyone was kind of just um, pumping their own tires and just trying to make a lot of themselves so that they could be really notable in that place. place. Wealth, religious pluralism, overt individualism, uh, this, in, in also being an explorational city and people from all kinds of places, there was sort of this, this society of sexual freedom, of do whatever you want as well. Sound familiar? This church faced, the church, that's Corinth, but the church itself faced a myriad of issues. Rampant disunity. In fact, next week we're going to look at a text in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul's lamenting the fact that there's these factions, these, these camps within the church where people are saying, I follow Paul, and others are, I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Cephas. And it's like this competitive like, thing. But we wouldn't know anything about that, right? Well, John MacArthur said that, uh, yeah, but I was watching Joel Austin, and you know what he said? I love what he said. Okay, I don't believe that because Matt Chandler, he's my guy, Matt Chandler said. How to handle disagreements between fellow believers was a problem, was an issue, lawsuits. Christians were suing each other in the church in Corinth. How to hold up the, the, the Christian sexual ethic when promiscuity was the cultural norm. Church members we see in 1 Corinthians, were, some of them were sleeping with prostitutes. There was messed up sexual issues there, like, like there was a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. And it says in the text, Paul's like, even, outside, even unbelievers are like, man, that's messed up. Like they were just so entrenched in the same kind of uh, sinful sexual practices that were common in their society to such an extent that even like out, people outside the church were like, that's messed up. And the church were like permissible of such things, which was a whole other issue entirely. They, they couldn't figure out, they were struggling to know how to relate to those with whom they disagreed on matters of faith. They were mishandling their spiritual gifts. Paul's going to spend 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 essentially trying to deal with worship wars. The 20th, 21st century church would know nothing about that, Right? They're like mishandling spiritual gifts. There were scenarios where they'd take the Lord's Supper and some people would arrive early and drink all the wine and get drunk and others would come and arrive and there was no wine left. Some would go with too much and some would go without. Paul was Paul, so concerned with this church. He was like, when you gather, it's like worse that you gather even. It's bad. Your gatherings are bad. And there were major theological errors they didn't believe, some didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe that the resurrection of the dead was a thing, and so it just totally affected their theology. In many ways, this church was a disaster. So if, as we start this, you think that this book might have something in our day to say about drunkenness, sexual sin, division in the church, confusion about how to relate to the world as followers of Jesus, theological views that step outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. If you think any of those things are issues that me, we might want to touch on, well, that's where we're going. 
In 1 Corinthians, there are a number of major issues going on in the church, problematic issues that Paul is addressing in his letter, and we're going to chase those in our series. We're not going to go through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We are, in a sense, because we're going to go beginning to end, but we're just going to follow the, the passages where Paul is directly addressing major issues, except for this morning. I just wanted to introduce us. I wanted to introduce us to this series And I wanted to introduce all of us to the way in which Paul addresses the church, because I think that it's the way that we need to address the next number of weeks together. Like, I I just told you about a bunch of the problems going on in the church. And so if I, a pastor, knew of all the problems going on in my church, and I was to sit down and write the church a letter, I don't think I'd start it like Paul starts this letter, (laughs) But I think we all have a lot to learn from how Paul starts this letter. A lot of years ago now, I went to a conference where a speaker at the conference, he's a pastor and author named C.J. Mahaney, spoke in one of the sessions, and he spoke on the introduction to 1 Corinthians. I've never forgotten it. It it stuck with me, and I I forget a lot of things, (laughs) but I didn't forget this because right away, it was so helpful to me, so shaping for me. It reshaped my view of the church. Man, do you have some issues with the church, some problems with the church, some questions about the church? Why is the church like this? Full of a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, whatever you might say about the church. I just found what he said that day so helpful to me in how I am to view the church. So helpful that I'm really borrowing a lot of what he said that day because I just find it wildly helpful. I think it's important. So let's look at how Paul begins the letter to this messed up church. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, some of you are having babies and stuff like that, so if there's any couples looking for baby names, I'd like to recommend Sosthenes. Okay, I'm going to make a pitch for Sosthenes. First of all, it's unique. That's what Emily and I went for with our boys, Boston and Walker. We were just like, let's go unique. Sosthenes is unique. The other thing is, is there, would there be anything more adorable than you asking a toddler what their name is and the toddler saying, Sosthenes? <laughs> right? Okay, there we go. I hope, to, I hope, Jason, I hope you announce a Sosthenes nine months-ish from now. Maybe less. Let's pick it up in verse 2 before we really get carried away. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, remember what I said in the intro about this church? Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is the introduction to 1 Corinthians. 
And here's where we're going to go with that because this is where I really believe the text is going with this. We're going to look at Paul's divine perspective of the Corinthian church. We see that Paul's divine perspective of the Corinthian church is evident in his first understanding of the call of God, second, recognition of God's grace in their midst, and third, confidence in God's faithfulness. See, this divine perspective of the Corinthian church made all the difference in Paul's attitude toward this church and his service of this church. And I think you would agree with me, a proper perspective is incredibly important, right? That you get the proper perspective on any situation is incredibly important. Imagine that you get this email from your daughter who's gone away to university. Dear mom and dad, since I left for school, I've been remiss in writing, and I'm sorry about my thoughtlessness in having not written before. I'll bring you up to date, but before I do, please sit down. Are you sitting down? It's very important that you sit down before you continue reading this. I'm getting along pretty well now that the skull fracture and concussion I got when I jumped out of my dormitory window that caught on fire shortly after my arrival is pretty well healed. I only get those sick headaches a couple of times a day. Fortunately, During the fire in my dormitory, my jump was witnessed by an attendant at a gas station. He ran over, took me to the hospital, and continued to visit me there. When I got out of the hospital, I had nowhere to live because of the burnt-out condition of my room. So he was kind enough to invite me to move into his basement bedroom apartment with him. It's sort of small, but very cute. He's a very fine young man, and we have fallen deeply in love, and we are planning to get married. We haven't set the exact date, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. I know how much you are looking forward to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same tender care and devotion that you gave to me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I've brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I am not pregnant, and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I have failed history and biology, (laughs) and I wanted you to see those results in their proper perspective. (laughs) What we want to do this morning, like I've told you, the big mess that we're about to enter for the next number of months in the book of 1 Corinthians, huge mess. Paul's fully aware of it. In fact, he's writing to them because of the huge mess. But he is able to write in the introduction to the Corinthians with a proper perspective, a divine perspective. And there's this transforming power that the Apostle Paul sees in a divine perspective that absolutely changes his view, changes his thoughts, changes his prayers, changes his tone changes the way that he ministers to this church. My prayer is that this text will help you see the difference a proper perspective can make in your heart and life. See, Paul's perspective of the Corinthians was a proper perspective because he had a divine perspective of them. So here's a question I'd like you to ruminate on as we work through this text this morning. Is your perspective of Central Community Church informed by a divine perspective? 
we are going to discover the divine perspective that's revealed in this passage so that we might experience the transforming effect of this divine perspective in our hearts and lives in the context of this church. And I already read it, but I want to show you again. In verse 1, it says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. And verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's look at this first. Paul's divine perspective of the Corinthian church is evident in his understanding of the call of God. Was the church a mess? Yeah, the church was a mess. But he rightly understood the call of God to that church nonetheless. From the outset, we see the author of this letter is Paul Anthophanes. And that Paul was called to be an apostle. What that means is that he was not self-appointed. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians, and he was literally on his way to go persecute more Christians when Jesus met him on a road, blinded him, and then met him in a vision, gave him his sight back, and called him his apostle, and sent him not to persecute Christians, but to make Christians. Like, Jesus stepped in to Saul's life, changed him, and sent him in a completely different direction. Paul is not a self-appointed apostle. Paul is an appointed-by-God apostle. Now, this word apostle really simply means sent or messenger or kind of pioneer missionary kind of a term. And Jesus uniquely used apostles to build his church. Paul was called to be an apostle because of the divine initiative of God. But now we get to verse 2. And in verse 2, likewise, it says of followers of Jesus that they're called to be saints. Now, if you think of saints, what comes to mind for you might be what comes to mind for me. I think of uh, dead people who were really, really good. That particular churches said, let's build statues of them and call them saints. That's not what the Scripture means when it says saints. It's speaking of a believer. What Jesus does in conversion and in leading someone to Christ, when they respond to the gospel, they go from sinner to saint in the eyes of God. Sinner cleansed by Jesus becomes a saint. Doesn't mean they're perfect. They're still sinners, but they're sinners saved by grace. And this term for saint simply means a believer, a follower of Jesus in this context and called into fellowship, called as a believer individually to be a part of the family of faith, as we see in verse 9, called to the fellowship of his son, that we be a people who gather. We're called into these things. And this is only possible that we would come to Christ through the divine initiative of God as well, just like in Paul's life. So this gets a little bit complicated, right? Because there's this sense of there are places in Scripture that emphasize human responsibility. We, we read about it. I mean, Paul in, in Acts 18 was told, stay firm, keep proclaiming, because I have people here who are mine. And so he's supposed to keep doing that. And as he does that, his human responsibility to continue to be faithful, Jesus draws people to him. There is this human responsibility. We see it in many texts in the Scriptures. And yet, at the same time, we can read other texts of Scriptures that seem to emphasize the sovereignty of God in all things. So, so naturally, a question to us is, well, which is it? Is God, is God sovereign in all things, or is there human responsibility? And the answer is, yes. And as we open the Scriptures together and we read about what God calls us to do, how He calls us to live... 
We preach that and we say, we need to live this way. We need to do these things. We need, we need to be all about that. And when we pick up passages of Scripture and we read them and they talk about God's sovereignty, His utter control in all things, we will proclaim that because His Word does. Let me illustrate it this way. If I were to give you a call, pick up the phone, give you a call, and you answer your phone, by you answering your phone, me calling you, we could, we're able to have a conversation, and that's how relationships are formed, and we have a good chat. We know each other more because of that. But why did you talk with me in the first place? Because I called you. What possessed you to pick up the phone in that moment and answer it and speak to me? Well, because I rang. I called you on the phone. To talk with me, it's necessary for you to answer, but who initiated? Me. Who caused you to grab your phone at that instance? Well, the call did. So, so it very much in our real experience of conversion, of, oh, I remember when I went and re I received Jesus. I it was this, and I prayed with my mom, or I went up forward, and I came to the pastor, and I did this, or I was with my friend, and they led me to Christ. And your experience of that is you giving your life to Jesus. Yes! Human responsibility. We are called to do that, and yet we only responded because an initial call was made by God. The reason we need to see this is because it's utterly important as we look in at the church, we need to recognize that God has uniquely called people, and if He's called them, they're His, and if they're His by His initiating work, by His divine initiative, then they matter to Him, and we need to see them that way. Now, this is a little bit of a contentious thing. What I'm talking about here, I'm talking about what we might start using terms like Calvinism, which emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all things, or Arminianism, which, which emphasizes human responsibility. Now, just pick your passage, and we need to talk about all of these things. But I, I'm so taken by a conversation that Charles Simeon had with John Wesley. Charles Simeon was kind of the next generation after John Wesley. So when Charles Simeon was young, he had a conversation with John Wesley, who was elderly, and it went like this. Simeon said, Sir, I understand that you were called an Arminian. By the way, uh, Simeon was kind of not a noted Calvinist, and Wesley a noted Arminian. Sir, I understand that you were called an Arminian, and I have sometimes been called a Calvinist, and therefore I, I suppose we are to draw daggers. But, but before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved, that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it in your heart? Wesley responded, yes, indeed I do. Simeon went on, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ, Wesley said. But sir, supposing you were fir at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, replied Wesley. I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then, Simeon went on, that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No, responded Wesley. Simeon went on, what then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether, said Wesley. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto His heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope 
but him, Wesley responded. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put away my dagger, for this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold, and as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. See, this old Arminian and this young Calvinist, they're usually young. That's a joke. Okay. They could agree it's all grace. Like they could agree, I would not be saved. I would be lost if it were not for the pursuing mercy, the divine initiative of Jesus Christ in my life. Yes, I responded but I responded with a, with a heart strangely warmed already to receive such incredible news. They both agreed. Now, there is kind of a new wave of Arminianism, which is so mixed up in the human responsibility stuff that, that, that it actually goes so far as to, to, to make God into someone who doesn't know the future, because how can he know what we're going to do? And so, because it's all human responsibility, we chase... You know, oh, God must not know. He kind of has some end goal, but like, it's just ridiculous. Like, we can't go where that goes. But historic Arminianism, historic Calvinism, both understand together it's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. It's His work in me, not my great doing. And see, our understanding of call, back to this text and what's going on, our understanding of call makes a huge difference in helping us have a divine perspective. Which are you more aware of? Let's get really practical with what I'm trying to say. Which are you more aware of when you think of your church, when you think of your fellow believers, when you think of your pastors? Are you more aware of God's divine, eternal initiative in their lives or the present deficiencies in their lives? What are you more aware of? So your understanding of call, the call of God in their lives will affect how you view them. So we need to get this whole call of God thing. This awareness of divine call, of divine perspective will affect your sight as you look at them, your thoughts as you think about them, and your tone as you interact with them. See, correction needs to be made. Paul's going to get to that in his letter. But the correction in the church, the correction of believers must always be informed first and foremost by this divine perspective of how God sees them. You're correcting somebody who's called. Have they responded to the gospel? Are they a believer and relier on the finished work of Jesus Christ? If they are, any sort of correction must be informed by this divine perspective God has of them. But to zero in on and only take notice of the unsaintly aspects of one's lives is to completely lack the divine perspective God has of His church, which is that they are called. This divine initiative of God. Is the church messed up? Yeah. Is there stuff to work on? Oh, Lord, help us? Yes. But called by God to be saints and in the fellowship as His bride the church. Such perspective should lead us, like Paul, to gratitude to God for His grace in the life of the church. I want to read verses 4 through 8 again as we move into the second 
part of this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we want to look at in this text is that Paul's divine perspective of the Corinthian church is evident in his recognition of God's grace in their midst. I mean, look how Jesus-saturated that text was that I, I just read. The basis for Paul's divine perspective of the church in Corinth is not how much they're nailing it, what a great job they're doing, how they're being such a light and beacon to the city of Corinth. No, none of what Paul is saying in this introduction has to do with how great the Corinthians are or how bad they are. It has everything to do with their past, present, and future being secured and sustained in Jesus Christ. Paul's surprising encouragement to this messed up church is grounded in Christ. By grace, their past is dealt with, their present is sustained, and their future is secured in Christ. See, Jesus doesn't save us and then leave it to us to hold everything together. He secures, sustains our past, present, and future. This church, this Corinthian church, just utterly misunderstood the gifts of the Spirit and misused the gifts of the Spirit. Chapters of this letter are going to go on to, the, to correction in these areas. So isn't it amazing that he can actually say in verse 7, you are not lacking in any gift. I wouldn't write that to them. Dear Corinthian church, you are not lacking in any gift. What he's saying is, you were truly called by Jesus. You as Christians that make up this church are saved by grace. And as saved followers of Jesus, he has given you a gift, objectively. You're, you're messing it up pretty bad subjectively. If we look in at how you're using that gift, it's pretty bad. But objectively, you're saved and you're gifted by Jesus Christ. And that's what he's starting the book with. You see it? Like he's starting it by saying, these things are objectively true. He's called you unto salvation and he has given you gifts and he has not messed that up one bit. Gordon Fee wrote of just, just amaze, the, how amazing this intro is and what Paul's dealing with here. Gordon Fee wrote, what is most remarkable about this thanksgiving is the apostle's ability to thank God for the very things in the church that because of abuse are also causing him grief. I praise God for you always. And you are not lacking in any gift. He's quietly swearing to himself. Now, I don't know what he's doing. But. The gifts present, present among the Corinthians were a genuine evidence of God's grace. Therefore, he could give thanks for them while adjusting their attitudes towards the gifts and their practice of the gifts in the corporate context later on. But listen, this is what I want you to hear. Apart from a divine perspective of the church, you will bear a striking resemblance to Lucy in the Peanuts cartoon. There is this Peanuts cartoon. Anybody know cartoons? Familiar with comic strips? 
Anybody know those? <laughs> There's this great old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy, uh, Lucy walks in the room and Linus is sitting in a chair reading a book. And Lucy walks in and says, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. And Linus is still just in his book and he says, what happens? And she says, I can feel a criticism coming on. She walks into the room. It's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. I feel a criticism coming on. Which are you more aware of as you look in at the church? You walk into the church building today. You see the people who make up your church family today. Are you like Lucy? Do you feel a criticism coming on? Or are you like Paul? You see the divine the objective reality of what God is doing in His church. The deficiencies in doctrine and practice were numerous, and Paul would address those, but he identified and drew their attention to the work of God in their lives. Listen, if someone is a Christian, God is at work in their lives, even if it's not immediately apparent to you how. Informed by this divine perspective, you can be certain that God is at work in their lives. Last week, we talked a lot about prayer. Prayer builds up the church. Prayer builds up the church. God sees fit to use it as a means for His purposes in the world. That as churches, as Christians, as followers of Jesus are so burdened, recognize they're utterly dependent on Jesus, they get on their knees and fervently pray for God to do what only He can do among them and their community. God always sees fit to bless that. History in the church shows us that. Prayer builds up the church. Excessive grumbling, complaining, and criticizing, however, do not. See, recognizing God's grace in your midst transforms your grumbling that tears down into prayer that builds up. For years, I learned this from C.J. Mahaney as well, for years we have begun our Tuesday pastors meeting and monthly staff meetings this way. We ask the question to our staff monthly and to our pastors weekly, what are the evidences of God's grace that you have observed in the life of this church this past week or in the life of this church this past month? It's one of my favorite moments of the work week because I sit in a room of pastors and monthly a room full of our staff and we spend like the next, easily, the next 15 minutes just telling stories. We usually have to cut them off so that we, because there's other agenda items to work through. We cut off the evidences of God's grace. Why? Because when we ask the question, this is, wonderful thing happens where we start hearing stories of what God's doing in children's ministry and youth ministry and among our young adults and in life group settings and in this couple's marriage and what he's redeeming over here and the miracle that's happened there and this person who gave their life to Christ this past Sunday, on and on and on it goes. It, like, what happens every week, I want you to hear this, is your pastors and your staff, it's gush over you. God is so at work in our midst that we just have story after story to tell about how he's moving and that we're observing. And occasionally we'll shift the question a little bit. Sometimes there's somebody who needs some encouragement on the team or we just really want to bless somebody that day. And we ask the rest of the team, what are the evidences of God's grace that you've been noticing in this brother or this sister over the last weeks and months, and we just share how we see God working. Do those things come naturally to you? 
Do you have 20 things at the ready to say about how God is at work among your brothers and sisters in Christ and your church? Do you find it difficult to perceive of evidence of God's grace in others? Here's what I'd encourage you to do. In, in the Scriptures, the best places to look, to grow in your observations of the evidences of God's grace, what He is doing among us is to look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit that you'll see in the Scriptures and the lists of the gifts of the Spirit we see in the Scriptures. Learn those. Study those. Memorize those. And then lift your gaze from the Scriptures onto your brothers and sisters in Christ and come alongside of them and tell them how you observe God at work in one of those ways. I cannot tell you how profoundly impactful it has been for certain brothers, usually more sisters even, they're just better at this, who come along, have come along in my life at key moments and said, I don't know if you notice this, but I see you growing in your faithfulness. I don't know if you see this or not, but Matt, you are moving here. God's working in you here. You're a different man than you were then, and I've seen that. I just want to tell you that it's been so impactful to me. You have no idea what, what power you possess to edify the body of Christ, but to study the lists of the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and come alongside a brother or sister in Christ in, a, in the life group setting or in the foyer or in a ministry you're a part of or in a friendship or in accountability or mentorship and whatever, and just say, I observe this in you. That is God's doing in you. I see it. God is so pleased with it. Keep going. God is moving. That is the divine perspective of even the most messed up churches that are striving to be faithful to the gospel nonetheless. Sadly, so many churches are populated with people who think their role in the church is to critique, so much so that they believe that they have been given by God the gift of criticism. They're usually self-appointed. Pastor, I've got five things to tell you about what went wrong on Sunday. Only two of them are about you, so don't worry about it. Just whatever it might be, just just. The gift of criticism just flows. It's, not, it's, it's like they're speaking in a tongue, except it's harsh words. You know? They're usually self-appointed. They're usually self-righteous. And they're spiritual Lucy's. I feel a criticism coming on. Wherever they look, they feel a criticism coming on because they don't perceive where God is in fact at work. I think you're going to be encouraged by the book of 1 Corinthians because as we read this, we're going to look at each other a few times and be like, they are a mess. And we'll be like, just by reading this letter, we'll be like, wow, God is really sustaining us and really faithful to us and really good to us. And we have a lot of joy here and a lot of health here and we should praise God for this just by reading this letter. And yet Paul, in the midst of such a messed up church, is still able to say, I praise God always for you. And his work in you is perfect. 
Amazing. Christopher Love, the Puritan, said, wrote, God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. Paul is emulating the example of God in this text. The reason he can write what he writes is because his gaze has been lifted from the horizontal to the vertical. He has this divine perspective, God's perspective on the church. Paul has that. And by grace, we too might emulate that, have a divine perspective. Seeing that God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace. That as you're observing your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you see just a little glimmer over here, and you go, I noticed that. And you just fan that into flame in somebody and say, they, they've actually started to move, and I noticed it. And I'm not going to critique the nine things they're doing wrong. I'm going to tell them I noticed that little flicker of faith, that little move of the Spirit that I, I know is evident in them. That's growth for them. I'm in a race to tell them and to fan that into flame. Central, I find you to be such an encouraging church. Like everywhere I go, I talk with pastors who are having a really, almost everywhere I go, having a really hard time. And I don't get it. I'm like, I'm having fun. I love my church. I went and guest preached somewhere else and like somebody here was like, so you were candidating? I'm like, no, never. Like I love my church. I wouldn't do that. Like I just love it. As long as God will have me and the elders, I will be here because I love it. Because you have the gift of encouragement. But imagine if we could lean in even more that we're such a people of encouragement, such a people of grace, such people with divine perspective that as we look at each other, when someone's suffering and we don't know it, we're such a people of affirmation and speaking into their life that it just builds them up when they're feeling low. Like that right word at the right time because we are a people driven to encourage one another in the faith. I saw that flicker. I saw that little flutter of faith over there. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fan that into flame. By grace, may we emulate Paul's emulation of God in this text. Let's close with this. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's how we can close. Paul's divine perspective of the Corinthian church is evident in his confidence in God's faithfulness, which is simply amazing given what's going on in their church. And yet it is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Their record is anything but guiltless. The entire letter is full of appropriate and accurate references of where they were guilty. So how can he be so confident that they will be sustained and preserved and guiltless before the Lord Jesus Christ? He's confident because in verse 9 he writes, God is faithful. Because God is faithful, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin, suffering, and difficulties will press us, but they will not rule us. They will press us, but they will not defeat us. Why? Because God is faithful. He'll sustain us 
and he will present us guiltless in the end. My friends, you need to hear this. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before he ever even looks at our record. This is really the truth statement of what Paul is saying in the introduction with a church that's so messed up. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before, we ever, before he ever even looks at our record. In Christ, presentable, purified. He takes the sinner, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and presents us pure and blameless. My confidence in the future is not rooted in a confidence in myself, but in the faithfulness of God. Here's a question. Where does your confidence lie? See, in reality, your record is anything but guiltless. But in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you would surrender your life to Christ today, you are presented guiltless to a faithful God who will sustain you to the end. We're going to get in the weeds in the next number of weeks in this book, in 1 Corinthians. We're just going issue after issue. I do not want you to forget day one of 1 Corinthians that divine perspective. Yeah, there's a mess. There will always be stuff. But as the church family, if we can have this divine perspective of called, grace given, and a faithful God who will see us through to the end, that'll change everything. Let's pray. Jesus, these are truths about you. This introduction to this letter is God-glorifying, Christ-exalting. It's making much of you. It's saying very little of this church, it's saying much of your truths, and Lord, we just rely on them. We believe them. You call, we answer. You give gifts. We abuse those sometimes, but they are divinely given gifts to those who are truly yours. And God, you make promises such as your faithfulness to us, and we bank on that. We believe it. Jesus, would you make us more and more and more and more into a church with a divine perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.